0: For the first time in 300 years, there was not a single living person living on the island of Barbuda. A civilization that had existed on that island had been extinguished. Hurricane Irma was 378 miles wide, and near its peak of its intensity as a Category 5 hurricane, when it made landfall, on the small island of Barbuda on the night of the 5th of September. The hurricane left three people dead, and 95% of the buildings on the island were either destroyed or significantly damaged. More than half of the country's residents were left homeless. The damage is complete, said Barbuda's ambassador to the US. It's the most ferocious, cruel, and merciless storm in the island's history. We all face, don't we, times of crisis within our lives. Storm Ophelia uh, passed us by this last week with little impact, yet crisis is something that we all have to deal with. Maybe not a physical hurricane or a storm, but a more metaphorical storm of life. Those storms look different for each of us. We may well be overwhelmed by the grief from the loss of a loved one. We may be deluged by the breakup of a relationship, the stability of a job, of a career path may be taken from under us. We may experience a turning point in our health. We all at some point will face those watershed moments, those times of calamity which define us and shape us. And the story here in Acts and chapter 12 opens with such a time of crisis Such a time of disaster, of tragedy. On the face of it, this is a stark story that we see here. King Herod is arresting Christians and he intends to persecute them. This is a theme that runs through the book of Acts. And as the church grows, it is persecuted. What we've read earlier is set in the context of mounting persecution. And we get a chilling twist to this persecution because James is killed. James, a disciple of Jesus. James, who was in the inner circle of those disciples, where we read in the gospel accounts of Peter, James, and John. And it is this James. Herod, a a politician, a political mover... He sees that this pleases the Jewish people, and so he seizes Peter as well in verse 3. In effect, we see Herod side with the Jewish people against the new followers of Jesus. And at this point, we're left with the seeming inability of God's people to do anything to deliver themselves. They were overwhelmed and they were helpless. There was nothing that they could do. James killed Peter in prison, about to be killed. Their despair on an even deeper level, as this is Passover week, the same week that Jesus himself was murdered earlier. And you can just imagine the helplessness the misery and the despondency that these people have. What is happening? Where is God in this? What is God doing? Can God be relied upon in a time of crisis? But let me just pause for a moment, because it's going to be really helpful to understand Where we are in the account of the story of the early church, because this helps us to understand why Luke is writing down this story for us. Up to this point, we've seen the grace of God at work growing wider and wider in fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which says this You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what we've seen over recent weeks. The gospel has been preached and people are becoming followers of Jesus. The grace of God has been moving in a miraculous way. 3,000 people were saved on one occasion. 5,000 people were saved on another occasion. The early church was marked with the power and the presence of God. The church was growing. God was being glorified. Jesus was being preached and the people were being saved. But yet Stephen has been killed. He's been stoned to death. And as a result, a persecution has broken out. And the believers have been scattered from Jerusalem. Last week, Ash introduced us to Saul. And last week, we marveled at the grace of God calling Saul. As he described himself, the worst of sinners. This is the grace of God at work. And here in chapter 12, our focus is about to be redirected from primarily that of the work of Peter and Philip to that of Paul. We're going to see the fulfillment of chapter 1 and verse 8 as Antioch becomes the center of these missionary journeys to the ends of the earth. But before this happens, Luke records this account for us to reacquaint its readers to remind them of the authority and the power of God. It is a reassurance for the surrendered, beleaguered church. A church that is wondering what is happening. A church wondering what God is doing. And so this story describes an amazing display of the strength and power of God among these seemingly helpless Christians. The story reveals the source of this power, the power of God, displayed. So can God be relied upon in a time of crisis? And Luke shows us yes. And what does this look like? Well, Luke gives us this story to help us to understand. What is it that stops us sleeping? What is it that stops us going to sleep at night when we're laying in bed? did I lock the front door? I'm an expert at this. I'm really good at getting up and checking that front door, even though I know that it's locked. I walk down the stairs and pull on that handle, and guess what? What about if you're really busy and you've got a busy time the following day and you know you've got to get up early and you've got a pressured time and you go to bed and you look at the clock and you say, I've got eight hours to get to sleep. I really need to get to sleep. And you can't sleep. And then seven and a half hours later, you think, I really, really need to get to sleep. Please, I really need to get to sleep. And then six hours later, you're like, ah. There is a whole industry, isn't there, which is built up around sleep and our need for it. So in preparation, as I looked at this story that was read to us earlier, sleep Was the thing which just jumped out of the pages to me. Peter is about to be tried in a kangaroo court and he's going to be executed the following morning. One of his best and closest friends is killed. He's in a dirty, smelly Roman prison cell. He's chained up and there are guards who are on round the clock duty. And what is he doing? He's not praying for deliverance. He's not writing his last will and testament. He's not screaming and crying. He's not beside himself. He's not begging for mercy, is he? The night before he is to die, Peter is fast asleep. Verse 6. Is this the same Peter who is described In the Gospels. Is this the same Peter who was once in a boat and he sees Jesus and he spontaneously, impulsively jumps out of the boat and walks on water to see him? Is this the same Peter who, as Jesus was being arrested, suddenly drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant? When Jesus says his disciples will fall away, is this the same Peter who says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you? The Peter that we see in the Gospels, he isn't passive. He's not marked out by his reflective, pondering nature, is he? He's a doer, he's an activist, He's hot-headed, he's impulsive, he's decisive. He steps in, doesn't he? And he takes control. That is the Peter that we know, isn't it? And yet we see him here, sleeping. What's happened to him? Has he somehow become fatalistic? Has maybe the events of life just battered him and beaten him? into submission? Has he given up? No. The events of life have been an opportunity for God to display his grace. Peter has used those past turmoils of life and God has used them to shape him into the person God wants him to be. The Peter that we see here. The power of God is being displayed here in the peace of Peter. This has been and continues to be an ongoing work of God in the life of Peter. Because, you know, Peter may well have jumped out of that boat and walked on water to meet Jesus. But his faith wavered and he began to sink. And he shouts, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out. And he grabs his hand and he catches him. And Jesus says, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter may well have disowned Jesus three times. But he was restored as Jesus called him to feed my sheep and follow me. God had used the trials Of life to shape Peter into the person God wanted him to be. Peter had been shaped by God for this. Last week, Ash talked about God humbling the proud. And this was the experience of Peter. Peter had experienced this grace of God on his life. And so the work of God in Peter's life had changed his response to a crisis. How do we respond to times of trouble? How do we respond to a crisis in our lives? Maybe not even a crisis... Often just the smallest things can come along, can't they? And they can send us reeling into fear or panic or worry or despair. And we go sleep. (sighs) We have a problem at work. And someone misunderstands us or misjudges us. And we can't stop thinking about it. Or our son or our daughter is struggling at school and we can't stop thinking about it. Or we've had some health tests and we're waiting for the results and we just can't stop thinking about it. And we go, sleep? You must be joking. No chance. If you're anything like me, those little cogs inside our head just keep on turning, don't they? Click, click, click. So how does Peter manage to sleep? Where did this peace come from? He was chained between two soldiers and he is sound asleep without a care in the world. This peace was God-given. God had worked in Peter's life and Peter was consumed with the peace of God in this cell. Peter had, through experience, been shaped by God to be the person God wanted to be because here we see the power of God displayed in the peace of Peter. Let me just refresh ourselves on the story that we've seen so far as it unfolds. Let me start reading again from verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter came then, then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Here we see God at work. The providential power of God here is being displayed. The detail in this story is overwhelming for us. Peter is being heavily guarded by Roman soldiers. There were soldiers chained to him, there were soldiers guarding his cell. Then an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and Peter's chains fell off. He walked past the guards, the iron gate leading to the city. It opens automatically. And we get a sense that Peter was somehow passive. We get a feeling that he almost floated out of this prison cell. It was almost like a dream to him. Do you get that picture from those words? And I don't know about you, but we can, when we read stories like this from the Bible, feel somehow cynical There is such detail in this story, yet it sounds just totally mind-bogglingly unbelievable. And you think, did this really happen? Is this true? But you see, I think we struggle to grasp and we struggle to understand the providential power of God. Especially in this day and age. Because we're nervous to talk about the supernatural power. Because we're scared, we're fearful of ridicule. Or maybe we're scared to think about it because we just plain can't get our heads around it. And I get that. But you see, this is our problem. The Bible is full, literally full, of the power of God being displayed beyond our comprehension and beyond our reason. Jesus said... I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is our link between heaven and earth, the supernatural and the natural. We're helpfully reminded by the Apostle Paul that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a movement and a communication between heaven and earth on our behalf. There is a powerful, supernatural, spiritual reality to God. And through this crisis, Peter was able to grasp it. Do we grasp it? You see, this event was a learning experience for Peter. Because Peter says, verse 11, Now I know, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jewish people were anticipating. Peter now realized that if there was a conflict between Herod and the Jews and what God wanted, then there would only be one resolution. There would only be one winner. Those ragtag, beleaguered Christians had the power of God on their side. The power of God. But this sounds simplistic, doesn't it? God in control. God all-powerful. Peter may well have experienced a dramatic escape Yet what would Peter say? What would Peter say if we asked why God had not saved James as well? God is in control. Or even if we asked Peter why James was not saved instead of Peter. God is all-powerful see, we don't have an answer to this. And we don't. And God doesn't need to give us an answer because God doesn't need to give us an account for his actions. God is not accountable to us in this way. And nor does God have to be seen to be working in order to be working God, in the most part, works out of our sight. But every so often, every so often, we see a glimpse of God which helps us. We see God revealing himself to us in a personal way so that we see the eye of faith that reminds us from time to time. We get a reminder that God is active. However normal, however mundane... Or even tragic. And this rescue that Peter experienced was far from normal, it was far from mundane, and it was far from tragic. But what happened to James was tragic. Yet Peter. Peter had glimpsed something of God in this situation. And so he was able to see with a fresh perspective. Verse 11 helps to remind us of what Peter saw. That Herod and the Jews would not win. And so Peter knew that James was safe. A different kind of safe. But James was safe nonetheless we have that same conviction? This is really a hard thing for us to understand and accept. We'll never truly understand it. But Peter, Peter couldn't reconcile why he was saved and James was killed. But he understood that God will save who he will save. He understood that God will use who he will use. And God will work how he chooses To work. Delivering one man from death. And delivering another man to death. This is God at work. And this is most explicitly shown through his gospel. One man, Jesus, was delivered to death. Why? So that we might be spared death. So that we might be spared spiritual death. By the death of God's Son, Jesus, the way into God's presence is opened for us all. And this is how God works. This is beyond the reach of human reason and it is out of the reach of human sight. Those unexplained times of crisis will one day happen and we will all go through them. Our prison times of life, the kind of circumstances we would never wish to happen upon ourselves, are the times to learn to rest in the wisdom and goodness of God. This is the distinguishing mark of a Christian a person who is able to face crisis with a hope, a confident expectation. So far we've seen the power of God displayed in the peace given to Peter. We've also maybe understood a little more of the power of God displayed in his providence. And now finally, just for a few moments, we will see the power of God displayed through prayer. We have two opposing communities portrayed for us here. On the one hand, Herod, yielding political power, military force, judicial authority, and on the other hand, we have these believers. And what do they have? Prayer. The only power the powerless possess. And verse 5 helps us to understand that they were earnestly praying. Earnestly praying, verse 5. Now, there is a danger, a real danger for us as Christians when it comes to prayer, especially in times of crisis or tragedy or suffering. You see, whilst their praying was earnest, it was not presumptuous they did not know how God would answer their prayer it was not a name it and claim it prayer this is not how God works it is not the heartfelt earnest praying of the believer that somehow convinces God to move in this way What would name it and claim it actually mean? After all, James dies. Why does he die? Because their prayers weren't earnest enough? No, that's a lot of rubbish. And the whole concept of a name it and claim it mentality is garbage. Because if you or I have ever prayed for somebody, maybe a dear loved one, to come through a certain tragedy or an illness or whatever it might be, and they haven't done so, it is not because we haven't prayed hard enough. When we pray, we are not responsible for answered prayer. God is. God alone. And only God. Prayer, prayer is about watching. Prayer is about God opening our eyes to what he is doing. Why? So that we gain a deeper understanding of God. So that our faith is strengthened so that we are more in tune with God's will in our lives. Prayer is an opportunity for our relationship with God to be developed and to be expanded. In their prayers, they would have imagined what it was like for Peter in prison. And these heartfelt, passionate prayers they shared in his pain. So the idea of Peter knocking on the the door outside was inconceivable to them. Yet it is possible through the frustration and the disappointment of life to wrestle for God's will and to plead for God's blessing. And it is possible through the pain and the tragedy to get a deeper understanding of the sustaining power of God. For our eyes to be opened through prayer. Do we let the misfortunes and the crisis of life provide the context for our prayers and then expect God to open our eyes to what He's doing because we might be amazed? Verse 16, they were astonished. So where does this leave us? John Piper, a relatively well known Bible teacher, he says these really helpful words I should feel a deep satisfaction in the works of God's providence, in that they reveal more of God to me and shape me for his good into the kind of person. Who treasures this God more fully? As some of you know, um, over the last couple of years, um, I have been through some tough times, through some difficulties, and I never wished them to happen. But they did. And some of you have shared that pain and that sorrow with me. And some of you have earnestly prayed for me. And some of you have earnestly prayed with me. And I have learned more about God and I have learned more about myself in the last two years than I did in the previous 20 years. The faithfulness of God, the love of God, the care of God, the grace of God. We can't run away from those prison times of life. We can't become immune to those difficulties of life. And I say this within all sincerity when I say, I don't want to. I don't want to. Because these are the times of God's refining fire in our lives, these are the times that make us more dependent upon Him and deepen our relationship with Him. It's a bit um, surreal, is all of this, a bit weird, because there were times over this last couple of years when I thought that I would never, ever, ever, stand up here again and speak like this. But God is faithful. And God is gracious. And we have a hope. And God is our anchor through the storms of life.